going to get back into our Prophecy 2014 update series. Um, it's been a little fluid uh, because, A, uh, once I got into it, the few things that I felt like, Lord, I, I just felt like the Lord would really have me expound a little bit more on a couple of areas. Um, and then we had the one Wednesday night, the, um, the CD uh, uh, machine decided not to record uh, part two altogether. Uh, so I may come back to that and do a review of that in a couple of weeks. Um, but I had promised to get to the rapture, so I wanted to do that tonight uh, and not put that off anymore. Uh, the good thing about prophecy is all of it fits together, so I can always come back and redo uh, and, and probably cover a few things that I didn't cover. Not everything makes it off the cutting room floor in a study anyway. Um, so we'll play that by ear. We still have a, um, uh, a Wednesday prayer and praise for the month of December, Christmas-related, so we've got that uh, to account for in the month of December. Um, and we've got our Christmas Eve service, which is also on a Wednesday. So factoring all these different things in, not including Thanksgiving, the praise service we had there, uh, it's made a little fluid, but um, because of that, I wanted to go ahead and address uh, the rapture this evening, and then we'll come back to some of those other things, including I still want to get to uh, one, one of the uh, areas we didn't do yet, which is what things are next on the prophetic calendar. Obviously, the rapture is still to come on the prophetic calendar, but there's other things that uh, we would be looking for, could be looking for, should be looking for, uh, and we'll get to that as well. Uh, but tonight, uh, if you want to turn with me first to Matthew chapter 24, and maybe if you can, go ahead and uh, put a thumb and index finger at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, specifically verses 51 and 52, 1 Corinthians 15, right after Romans, and then you'll also want to put your other finger uh, first, uh, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 4, First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 16 and 17 and 18 there, but Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, and First Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll look at those three passages uh, to start with. Before I read them, something that uh, yesterday I got together with uh, Ten other, well, nine other Calvary Chapel pastors, and um, we get together quarterly now. Um, just different ones of us each time, some of the same, but uh, one of the pastors, we were going around doing prayer requests, praying for each other, and two of them prayed, two of them had prayer requests just that their church would, would have a burden for the lost. And one of them, I, I won't say which Calvary Chapel it was, he said, you know, a church of about 200, um, he said, you know, We've got a lot of folks in our church, they love the Lord, they love to be with each other, they, 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 you know, we have a good family relationship, but a lot of them, they, 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 they want to be prepared for the collapse of our economy, and they, they want to be prepared for this, and they want to be prepared for that, and he goes, I just think they've, in all of that, they've seemed to lose their desire to win people to Christ. And everyone there was nodding their head. And it is a danger, 
And that's why I think it's really important that we look at uh, what Jesus has to say about uh, the rapture because um, we're not to be fixated on the end times. The scripture stated that our eyes should be fixed upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When our eyes are fixed on him, he'll give us a proper balance and understanding of the end times, and he will have us have the right level of care about it, but in a purifying work. Does that make sense? It would purify us. And of course, the scriptures actually speak to these things. So let's look at what Jesus says first, then we'll look at what uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. All right, turn with me over to 1 Corinthians. We could read more, but I don't have time to go through the entire context. We'll come back to that. So over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writing to Corinth, starting verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Now turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, and again, you might want to go back and read all of this in context, going back to even, chap- even verse 13, where Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. It's always a good thing when, whenever the writer of Scripture said, I don't want you to be ignorant, pay really close attention to what comes right after that. But verse 16 says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, nowhere did you see the word rapture. Not, not that word specifically. The word rapture isn't in the Bible, not the, the word that we use. Uh, but the word Bible is not in the Bible. Right? The word Trinity is not in the Bible. But there really is a Bible, and there really is a Trinity, and there really is a rapture. Uh, if you prefer, you can use the Greek word that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, uh, when you saw in the phrase, caught up, right? To be caught up with the Lord, that Greek word, harpazo, you can, if you prefer, you can just say, I'm not going to say rapture anymore, I'm just going to say harpazo. And that way you can diffuse anyone's problem with the fact that the word rapture is not in the Bible. So all right, I'll just apply the Greek word to it because that actually is, and of course it just means rapture, caught up. That's our English word, but it means the same thing. Uh, you can say caught away. If you just want to say caught away, caught up, harpazo, rapture, they're all synonymous. 
our English rendering, of course, uh, caught up or the term rapture. Now, as far as the rapture within biblical orthodoxy, which is, which is to say biblical orthodoxy is things that are appropriate scriptural views, but they're not necessarily all in agreement, but they're not false teaching. Does that make sense? There's such a thing as false teaching, and then there's different views of something, and it's okay to share a different view. It's okay if you want to be wrong, but nevertheless, you can have different views. I'm just kidding about that, you know. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word tonight, The Hope of the Rapture. The Hope of the Rapture. And regardless of what view a person holds, if they say, well, I believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, okay? It's not a false view. It is a biblically orthodox view. In other words, it fits within Scripture that you could take that view, and it's not a false view. Uh, You could take a pre-tribulation view, which the view I hold, and then we'll talk about that primarily tonight. Uh, There's a pre-wrath view, so you can have that view of the Scriptures. And then there's a post-tribulation rapture view. And then lastly, there is no rapture at all view, which is no view at all. (laughs) So, uh, Because that would be like saying, if you have a no rapture view, that would be like saying that the Bible says nothing about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You'd have to say, well, Acts 2 is irrelevant. I know it says the Spirit was poured out, but I, I, I see that as something completely different. That doesn't mean that at all. So when the Scriptures say that we're caught up in the air, there's absolutely a rapture. The question is, when is it? And who does it all involve, right? So there's absolutely a rapture, no question about that. Whether it's pre, pre pre-wrath, mid-trib, post-trib, trib just short for tribulation, tribulation period, we'll get into that as well. Um, My desire as a believer is not to be right, per se, although I do want to have the right view, and I believe that scripturally, I believe the pre-tribulation view is the most in harmony with all the Scripture. But it's not about being right in that, because if, if, if we're all going to be raptured and it was in the middle of the tribulation, the bottom line is you want to be ready for Jesus, right? Ready to meet the Lord. Because you could meet the Lord next week, it has nothing to do with the rapture. It could be the end of our life. So we always need to be ready to meet the Lord. All of these things should stir us to be ready, not stir us to be right and win arguments with other believers. You know, that. So uh, there's false teaching. That's clear. And then there's views that are biblically orthodox. Uh, they fit within Scripture. Um, a brief, uh, just very quickly, the, mid, the, the different views. So the mid-tribulation view, what is that view? Is that, that's not what I'm going to be teaching tonight, but at least I'll tell you what it is. The mid-tribulation view means that in the seven-year tribulation, the mid-tribulation view is that the rapture of the church, church takes place dead smack in the middle at the three-and-a-half-year mark. Why the three-and-a-half-year mark? Well, that is the time that according to Daniel chapter 9, the Antichrist will break the covenant with Israel, right? To stand where he ought not. Jesus cites this as well. 
And then you would have, from that point forward, that would, that would be the break point in the middle of the tribulation. The church would be caught up. And part of that is based on uh, a view of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we'll look at as well. So that's the mid-tribulation view. And I'm not spending any more time on that. You can go study the mid-tribulation view on your own. We don't have enough time. But the pre-wrath view is another view um, that uh, is shared by uh, men that I you know, respect as Bible teachers. You know, we had Jacob Prash here years ago, and uh, he, he holds the pre-wrath view, and so does other men of God that I respect. And that, uh, generally speaking, is, is thought to be after the sixth seal uh, in Revelation chapter 6. Um, you have the seal judgments, and they're pretty horrific in and of themselves, but uh, uh, the view there is that when it speaks of the wrath of the Lamb, that then the wrath of God is poured out, and so the Christians are spared the wrath of God, and all the things prior to that are really the workings of the Antichrist and, and um, other things. Uh, I don't hold that view, but again, it can fit biblically, uh, so it's not a false teaching by any means, and there's godly men that teach it, and even though I don't hold that view, uh, there's no breaking fellowship with a, a mid-trib or a pre-wrath. And then lastly, there's the post-tribulation view, which is held by many godly men too, like a Dr. Michael Brown believes in a post-tribulation rapture, and I, I like Dr. Michael Brown's teaching. He's good friends with Sam Nadler, who is pre-tribulation like I am. Um, and by the way, I'm not pre-tribulation because it's a Calvary Chapel thing. I came to Calvary Chapel because I had come to be settled in these things myself as a believer. And so the post-tribulation uh, view uh, is that Jesus would capture, rapture the church up to meet him right at the end of uh, the book of Revelation, or the end of the tribulation, I should say, the end of tribulation, uh, you have the battle of Armageddon. The church would be caught up just before the battle, if you will, and they quickly come straight back down with Jesus. It's like this, like that. They get up there. It's like a quick get on your white robes and you're going straight back out the door. That's the post-tribulation uh, view. And again, as I said, the no rapture view, I won't even give that the time of day. Uh, it, to deny that the words are there uh, is just to deny the scripture at all. And so there are some that think there's no rapture at all. And so I, I don't know if they just caught uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 out of their Bible, or they view it in some odd way. But nevertheless, the other views uh, are fine. But I really believe that as we look tonight uh, at the hope of the rapture, I'll also be putting it through the lens of why I personally believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I don't know about you, but that's a really nice thing to know would, would the Lord really allow us to escape the wrath of the seven-year tribulation? Um, again, I'm not dogmatic about it. I hold that, uh, that these other views have some merit, but I believe that the total weight of Scripture comes down on a pre-tribulation pre view. Now, anyone that's a, that's a good student of the Bible, and again, there's solid students of the Bible, brilliant godly men and women who have studied this, uh, and each of them will cite biblical hermeneutics or exegesis, uh, which is to say that they'll look at the scriptures and, and make sure that there's a very systematic, logical explanation of the text, that, that there's a critical analysis of it, uh, that 
that it all fits, that you're not just kind of just pulling things out, uh, that there really is a logical order in studying the text and not reading into the text, but taking the truth out of it. Uh, anyone that's going to be a faithful student of the Bible is going to study this faithfully uh, and is going to come at it um, with the same foresight, if you will, but that doesn't mean that they'll arrive at the same conclusion every time. Take a look, if, if an object, I'll give you an example this way. This is biblical hermeneutics or exegesis uh, that we're all looking at the scriptures correctly, but don't necessarily come to the exact same conclusion, especially with things that the Bible says are out there, and they're a little bit blurry sometimes because they haven't happened yet. Makes them a little more blurry, right? If we were all out in the Caribbean Sea, we all had the same exact pair of binoculars, right? We're out in the Caribbean Sea, and there's an object on the horizon. You cannot make it out with the naked eye, and even when you put it in binoculars, you can't really make it out, and you have four different people. One says, I, I think that's an iceberg. And the other person says, no, I think it's a white sand island. The other one says, I, no, I think it's a floating oil platform. The other one says, I think it's a boat capsized upside down. The white part of the hull is, is showing. The other person says, I think it's a mirage. It's nothing. That's the no rapture view. Right? I don't, I don't think it is actually there at all. But the other views, although some more plausible than others, are within the realm of possibility. Correct? I mean, even an iceberg could catch in a current. I don't know how NASA could have missed it. It wasn't there, but nevertheless, it could be. But you could look at them and still see something different. And the fact is, when you're studying scriptural truths and scriptural doctrines, um, here's one thing to really understand about when you study scripture, especially this relates to prophecy, but not just prophecy. When you study the scriptures, some passages, some scriptures take precedent over others. This is the... When you study the scriptures, especially prophecy, some, pro some texts are cornerstone texts, and the other texts build around them. Make sense? Some scriptures take precedence over others. Precedence in application and precedence in understanding, but yet all scriptures are equally God-breathed. Does that make sense? Precedent in understanding, precedent in application, but yet all scriptures are equally God-breathed. Some verses, being cornerstone verses, shed light on other scripture. Let me give you an example of this. Why, you could say, do, do, do really some verses take precedent over others? Yes, I'll give you an example. How about this one? Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Why does that verse take precedence over some other verses? Well, you might read verses in the New Testament and say, oh, we were created for good works. If you didn't know this verse, you might think that we are supposed to work our way to heaven. But Ephesians 2.18 is a cornerstone verse. It takes precedence over other verses and helps build the doctrine of grace around it. Oh, it's by grace you're saved and not by works. Then every other verse you see about works you have to go back to Ephesians 2.18 and re-understand how does that fit with Ephesians 2.18, not the other way around. Here's another one. In Acts chapter 15, the apostles had a bizarre, not bizarre, but they didn't know what to do about circumcision because the Old Testament said you must be circumcised. 
And these guys are all Jewish, and they'd all been circumcised, and Gentiles were getting saved who weren't circumcised. The Holy Spirit told them they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. They're like, what? I thought that everyone would become a Jewish person, get circumcised, and therefore they would be saved. That's what some were teaching. Paul goes on to say to the Galatians, who tried to bring everybody back to Judaism and make them Old Testament followers of the letter of the law, Galatians 5, 6, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. That verse is a cornerstone verse. And it sheds light on the whole New Testament. Therefore, somebody doesn't have to be circumcised to be saved whatsoever. But if they only do the Old Testament, they would think they did. Right? Doesn't mean the Old Testament is invalidated. It has its reasons and purposes for the whole biblical understanding. But when you study prophecy and any other scripture, you don't build doctrine on any verse you must understand how the verses fit together and which verses take precedent over others. All right. So, the rapture, I believe in the pre-tribulation view. After studying, and we're not going to go through uh, other than what I just gave you, a little brief synopsis of what the other views are, mid-trib, pre-wrath, and post-trib. Um, the common attacks, there are some common attacks on pre-tribulation. One of them is, uh, you'll sometimes hear people say that the pre-tribulation view uh, didn't come about until about 1830, a lady by the name of Margaret McDonald. That's not true. It's patently false. Uh, in fact, Ephraim the Syrian said in 373 A.D., he wrote this, and he, was, uh, he taught and uh, preached in the church and was uh, a, a godly saint uh, there early in the church, 373 A.D., for all the saints and the elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation is to come, and are taken to the Lord, lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. That's a little bit before 1830, 373 A.D. Uh, a Baptist pastor by the name of Morgan Edwards in 1722, he taught that the Turks would be removed from Israel. This is long before Israel had become a nation. Israel had become a nation in 1948. He taught in 1722 you talk about a man that had faith. He was teaching in 1722 that the Turks would eventually be removed. He didn't know that the Brits would actually overtake the Turks, and actually the Brits would be removed. And there, of course, there were still remnants of the Ottoman Empire and all of that. But nevertheless, he believed that the Turks would be removed, Israel would be restored, but the church would be taken up to meet the Lord before the seven-year tribulation. So it's not a new view. It's uh, actually many writings... It goes way back, and the reality is that all of prophecy will become more clear the closer we get to the end. Uh, none of the views of prophecy, we actually see the origins, much of the, mid, uh, much of the post-tribulation view uh, originated not even within Protestantism. A lot of that came out of uh, Catholicism, and then the Reformers adopted much of that as well. So uh, anywhere you go, don't follow a man, follow what the Scriptures say. Now, the hope of the rapture and why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, it really is a great hope, the rapture, no matter when it occurs. But I believe it's the greatest of hope if it's before the tribulation. It's a great hope. Boy, if you're in the middle of the tribulation and, and, and I'm wrong, 
and, it, and it's in the middle of the tribulation, we'll still be thankful to get out of here in the middle. But you'll even be happier <laughs> to leave before it. And actually, when I talk to guys that are, that are post-trib or mid-trib, they always say to me, I hope you're right. <laughs> to me. <laughs> I, say, I hope I'm right, too. So I haven't had any of them say, I sure hope I'm right, and we get to live through half or all the tribulation, as if even living through it would be easy to do. Let's take a look at the reasons. Number one, I have ten of them. Number one, number one reason I believe, and they're not all in order, but this first one is in order. The rest of them I've got a list that they're equal importance, but the first one is my, my most important. Number one, we have to be ready today. What I've found about studying the Bible, I've been saved since 1995. The longer I study the Bible, Jesus taught a principle that we, we so want to overlook, and the smarter we get, the more we want to overlook it. Jesus said, unless you become as a little child, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of God. In Scripture, the simplest answer is usually the best. The simplest answer is usually the best. God is not trying to confuse us and to confuse the church. He's certainly not trying to confuse the lost. He's not the author of what? Confusion. We have to be ready today. Why do I say this is my number one reason? More than deep, complicated Rubik's Cube analysis. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. The other views don't support it. The other views do not support the eminent Jesus could return at any moment. Why? Because the other views all say it's at least three and a half years away from right now. True? Minimum. Well, pre-wrath is not exactly three and a half, but it's close to it. Post-trib, at least seven years away. That's assuming the tribulation started tomorrow. Right? So no other view can even say Jesus could return at any moment for the church, the way I understand the other views, because all of them would say, well, he could return, but it can't be till the middle of the tribulation. can't be before, until the, right after the sixth seal. It can't be until the, right before the Bible of Armageddon. Therefore, the eminent return of Christ has a problem to me, and that's why, to me, it's my number, it's the simplest argument, but to me the most profound. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus makes this point. We read it. But of that day and hour, no man knows. And then you'll get the deep analysis. But when he says hour, when he says hour, you, can, you can't know the minute or the second, but you can know the day. He said, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Now, there will be some that won't even, again, biblically, they might say, well, that's, that's not even speaking of the rapture. We'll come back to that, too. Why well, I believe that it is. Got to shelve that for a second. Jesus, in Revelation chapter 22, it's probably worth you turning there real quick. Look in, look in your own Bible so you don't just have me read it to you. Turn over to Revelation 22. It's the last chapter in the whole Bible. So John gets the last chapter of the Bible, 
And this is what Jesus decides to say, not once, not twice, three times. What does he say? Verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Then in verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. And then in verse 20, surely I am coming quickly. Now, Jesus either means it or he doesn't mean it. Now, you might say, well, then he didn't mean it or I don't know what he means because when that was written, it was 2,000 years ago and he hasn't come. The point was, just like in Matthew 24, he says, no man knows the day and the hour. Quickly is unknown. But I've got to be ready. The parable of the wise and foolish versions makes no sense if it's at the end or the middle because you kind of know exactly when the wedding... I, all right, let's goof off for the next three years. We've got six months. Get everybody ready because the wedding feast, he's going to come back. It's going to be midnight. Uh, well, within about a two-week period, we can figure out because the Antichrist just did his thing. So we know we need to be ready. But not if Jesus says, I'm coming an hour you don't know. I'm coming at midnight, and you don't even, you better, be, you better have your garments ready. I, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Now, how could the early church even relate to that? They would say, well, he did not come in quickly because we're nowhere near the tribulation period. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know when he is revealed we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, here it is, purifies himself just as he is pure. The fact that Jesus could come imminently any moment does a purifying work. It keeps us on our toes, spiritually speaking. I actually have people tell me sometimes that pre-tribulation view gives people a license just kind of, oh, I know I'm not going to have to go to the tribulation. So I'm like, you're not reading your Bible. If you think that gives you a license to do whatever, you are not reading the scriptures. It's quite the opposite. The pre-tribulation view should have a purifying work because you don't know. Jesus could really come back at any moment and you want to be. It doesn't mean you're not saved if you, uh, you know, currently all of a sudden you're not reading and you're not having devotions and you're not sharing... But you can lose rewards. Absolutely. There is a judgment seat of Christ, which a whole other prophecy teaching. But that's true. The, all the epistles, the church then had to be able to receive them as eminent as we are today. They were just as much looking at these things. This is why Paul has to write what he writes in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, because they were excited about could Jesus return at any moment. Paul never debunked that. He said quite Surely, yes. Look forward to these things, he said. Hebrews 10, verses 37. I mean, just, uh, not verses, but just verse 37. Hebrews 10, 37, for yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Hebrews 10, 37. Number one, again, if you're taking notes, why I believe pre-tribulation is we have to be ready today. Number two, Number two, if you're taking notes, it's a hope that Jesus and the apostles maintained. Now, as much as you might 
I've had a great week. It won't, be, it won't be comparable to one second with the Lord Jesus Christ. The best day you've ever had on this earth, the scriptures say, is better as one day in his courts than a thousand in Fiji. Any elsewhere you can think of. Any best day, but a thousand of them all combined. Of course, that's just a term. It really means beyond that. You can't compare anything. But the rapture of us being caught up to the Lord and, and, and even prior to the tribulation itself is a hope that I believe Jesus and the apostles maintain. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. First one is John 14, 3. You know this passage. Jesus said this. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and what? Receive you. That receiving, receiving you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. You say, well, that doesn't definitely say, uh, preacher. Let's look at them, some of the other scriptures together. Again, we want to get a multi scriptural view of this. First Thessalonians 4 18. Uh, we read that last verse uh, at the beginning. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Paul employs that, that the reality of Christ's return and the twinkling of an eye, also very sudden, out of nowhere, in a moment, in a twink, that we were to comfort one another with these words. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.7, listen to this verse. Now this, this absolutely is an eminent one as well. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eagerly waiting. I don't know about you, but if I know that something is, let's say um, I'm going on vacation a year from now, I'm not eagerly awaiting that. I don't start eagerly awaiting it until maybe six weeks out or something like that. But, you know, something that's far out. Eagerly waiting means that at any moment you're waiting that it could happen. But there's more. It's some better verses even than that one. Titus 2.13. Titus, Paul writes to Titus. Titus was a pastor. Paul said to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He told Titus we should be looking for his appearing. He didn't say... We should be looking for the Antichrist, or we should be looking for all the other signs. Now, that's not to say, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to identify those other things. I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm saying some scriptures take precedence over others. Remember that? We talked at the beginning. Looking for Jesus' return takes precedent over looking for other temporal things, even if they're prophetic in nature. Looking unto Jesus and his return is a priority. James said this in James 5, 8. You want to write these verses down. James 5, 8 through 9. James really, James puts a great nail in the, uh, in the case here. And James says, you also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he goes on the ninth verse, he said, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James says the judge is standing at the door. Who's the judge? Jesus. How do we know that? 
Well, Paul writes about that in 2 Timothy 4.8. He said, finally, by the way, you and I will all stand before the Lord as our judge, but also our Savior, our Master, our King. Judge is one of his titles. The way he judges us is more like you are a well-loved and respected employee of your company. It's more like your annual review process, if you will. Everything won't have gone perfect, but what you did well, you're going to hear well done on. Thankfully, you don't actually get to hear, and you were really lousy at this, you were really lousy at that. The judgment seat of Christ is Jesus reviewing the good works we did under the power of the Holy Spirit. The other judgment, is a t- that is a criminal court case where everyone will be found guilty. That's the great white throne judgment. That's not an annual review. Or a one-time and eternity review is really the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment, that judge is a different, that's one that heaven and earth fled away from. You don't want to be in that judgment. But Paul says that our judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not, it's not a, uh, it's not a thing that um, we would look at with horror, though we could be ashamed of things we could have done but chose not to. That makes sense? Not horror, but we could have some, man, I really did, why did I watch that extra 8,000 hours of TV? 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes, Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but all those who have loved his what? Appearing. Appearing. He'll appear, will appear with him, will be received unto him. James said the judge is standing at the door. All these things speak to eminence. At any moment, Jesus could return. The reality is most Christians, in their heart of hearts, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. Most of us don't think Jesus could return at any moment. Just like we don't think, most people don't think they're going to die next week. They could, they have no idea one way or the other, but they don't think they are. They would do things different. All of us would do things differently if we thought for sure we were going to help meet the Lord next week. But just like people don't think they're going to die next week, they really don't think Jesus could return at any moment. And Jesus says, no one knows, and I could come at any moment like a thief in the night. And would you be ready, like the wise and foolish, would you be the wise virgins ready, or the foolish virgins, no oil in the lamp? Oh man, I, I should have been walking in the Lord and I wasn't. So, the apostles and Jesus, though, said that this is a hope that they could uh, look to. The blessed hope, as Paul calls it in Titus chapter 2. Number three, the church is not overtaken by the end and the darkness of the evil one. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. You can just write, the church is not overtaken. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5. Say, what do I mean by that? The text explains it better than anything else. Just turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, that we were in 4, but it just kind of picks up. 1 Thessalonians 5, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, why is Paul saying that? Because he visited with them personally, 
and taught them the doctrine of eschatology. What does that mean? End times. He explained to them the end times. In between the first Thessalonians epistle and the second, it appears that somebody gets to these guys and messes with their minds. Paul has to rewrite them a second letter and sort out why they're so troubled. But this is not the second letter. This is the first letter. He's referring to teaching he's already done with them. If I wrote you guys a long letter after teaching, I would refer back, hey, remember when I was teaching on Wednesday, December the 3rd? Remember that night? Here's some, here's some additional items that support what I was talking about. That's basically what Paul's saying here. He's saying, for concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, this is the world around us, they're, they're acting like things will go on this way forever. Uh, America, you're going to make more money in the next 50 years than you made in the last 50 years. Everything's going to be great, peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. You are sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Now, the end that he's talking about, the sudden destruction. He doesn't say sudden disruption. He says sudden destruction. The sudden destruction uh, is the end that will come upon after all these labor pains will become the birth of the tribulation. It won't come upon us, it won't overtake us, because I believe the other scriptures point out that we will have been caught up to be with the Lord. It didn't overtake us because we were walking pure and ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. And Paul's writing, remember he just told them in the previous chapter about in the moment, or he, uh, sorry, he, the voice of the archangel and that we'll be caught up in the clouds. That was chapter 4. So the church is not overtaken. That's number three. Number four, the gospel of the end. Go back to Matthew chapter 24. Back to Matthew chapter 24. It's important, you guys all have heard of the 2020 rule in Bible reading. Make sure you at least read 20 verses above, 20 verses below to understand the context. Something taken out of context is a pretext particularly when it's Bible teachers that are trying to... I, I, I'm not trying to force a view. I, I want to look at the Scriptures honestly, sincerely, openly, humbly, by the Holy Spirit. Lord, what are you saying to us collectively, the body of Christ? What are, the, are, you, are you making these things really clear? Remember, in, in, um, there's not a chapter separation when the Bible was written. We have chapter separations that came later, but take, for example, in, um, in Matthew, Jesus is speaking in, verse, in chapter 23. Look in chapter 23, verse 37 through 39. I'm not going to read it. But Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem there. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long to gather you? Okay. Jesus is speaking to Jerusalem. The very next scene, they ask about what? The temple. There's nothing more Jerusalem than the temple. Jesus says it's going to be destroyed. Of course, that happens in A.D. 70. The temple is where all of the you know, sacrifice and the priestly duties and all that's taking place. But Jesus moves from that 
he moves well beyond their time period and well beyond Jerusalem, if you will, because he goes all over the world by verse 7. He says, nation will rise against nation. Uh, verse 6, there'll be wars and rumors of war. They'll deliver you up to tribulation. He speaks about the false prophets, which is the great apostasy. Uh, eventually, that many religions will rise in the latter days, which will actually use Jesus' name, such as the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. They'll use his name, but they'll be false. And there'll be many other false religions using the name of the Lord. Lawlessness will abound, but he endures the end. Look at verse 13. And then comes verse 14. But this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. What end? Well, the end would be then the judgment would come because Jesus starts in verse 15. He goes into the great tribulation period. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolations, now we're told to hasten the return of the Lord, to hasten the return of the Lord. One of the ways that we can hasten the return of the Lord, uh, return of the Lord is verse 14, the gospel preached to all the world. And then the end, it's actually uh, sometimes referred to as the gospel of the end, that we would get the gospel out to all the remaining language groups that haven't heard the scripture. There's people that still haven't heard the gospel all over the world. That number gets less and less, but it indicates that if Jesus is taking, starting with Jerusalem, but then he goes forward to the end, and then he comes back in verse 15 and begins to speak of the tribulation period specifically. And at that point, he's talking about uh, Jerusalem again and what's going to take place and uh, getting out of Jerusalem. And then he speaks about the coming of the Son of Man in verse 29 through 31. Uh, he's going to come and all the nations will see him. That's at the very end of the tribulation, right? That's the very end of the tribulation. And then he picks up in verse 32, he kind of goes back to things that they can look for in their lifetime. He says, now, not necessarily their lifetime, but things that they would, they would be looking for. Now learn this parable of the fig tree. And then he goes into, when you see the fig tree do thus and so, you'll be able to know that the season of his return is nearby. Well... The fig tree was a picture of Israel, and for a long period of time, Israel didn't exist. So we know that Jesus, if you will, in the, in the uh, 24th chapter, he kind of steps in and out of different time periods. But if you look at verses 1 through 14, the gospel of the kingdom is really going around the world and could easily go around the world in the very time which would be the beginning of sorrows. Before the Antichrist, that the, the gospel goes out. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single person just says in all the world. So different language groups, it doesn't mean every single person's heard the gospel. Uh, not making that case, but it does say uh, in all the world. Could it fit that that would be, uh, you know, Somewhere in the tribulation? Yeah, it could. But again, that's where I go back to the weight of the other scriptures. The other scriptures being cornerstone scriptures, some of these things coming around it. But 
The gospel of the end, number four. Number five, the church and the book of Revelation. Well, I won't have you turn there, but for sake of time, how is the church um, pictured in the book of Revelation? Well, in chapters one through three, you're familiar with Jesus has the letters to the churches, right? He writes the letters to the churches. They were seven little churches. They're in Asia Minor. Uh, but in addition to being seven literal churches, uh, many of us that study the scriptures and scholars that you know studied it far more uh, you know than I have and others, but uh, believe that these were church ages too. And I believe we are in the age of the Church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. America typifies this of any church. We we're rich and have need of nothing. We've got multi-million dollar church buildings. We've got program after program after program, and yet there's no revival in the nation whatsoever. We've got tons of stuff going on, lots of activities. But Jesus writes to the church in the form of the seven churches, and there's faithful people in each of those churches, and and down through the church ages, there's been faithful people. And then in the chapters 4 and 5, what happens is John is caught up into heaven, which I believe, and others believe, is a picture of the church being caught up before what starts in chapter 6, which is really nasty stuff. That's the outpouring of death and disease and uh, catastrophes, even before the wrath uh, that that, that the pre-wrath view uh, speaks of uh, in chapter 6, even before that. We'll look at that in just a second. Um, So uh, the church is not actually mentioned as the church in those six, cha- six through 19 chapters. Now, certainly saints are mentioned. Saints are martyred. Who are they? Uh, I believe that those are people that get saved during the tribulation period. We know that people have to get saved in a tribulation. Why would there be the ceiling of the 144,000 evangelists? Someone has to preach the gospel, and God anoints a new set. Notice they're all Jewish, by the way, at that time. God anoints 144,000 Jewish virgin evangelists. Abu- Can you imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls? Paul by himself wreaked havoc. Matter of fact, it was said of him that they said he's wreaked havoc everywhere he went, in a good way, I mean. Everywhere he went, people, churches were planted. People got saved. Turned towns upside down. Can you imagine 144,000 of him? That can do some serious evangelism. D.L. Moody by himself rocked two continents. I'm not saying D.L. Moody did it. I know it was the Holy Spirit. But one man availed of the Lord, and these 144,000 are going to be like God's Navy seals of evangelism. So you can't overlook these things. You want to look at the total, totality of Scripture. Why, uh, why are they needed if the church is in the millions of people? Number six, the church and the wrath of God. The wrath of God uh, refers to the tribulation period in a number of ways. You'll sometimes see the term the day of wrath, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, which I believe is in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll look at in just a minute, the day of Christ, as mentioned, the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb, which is in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, the wrath Lamb, that's when the people, after the sixth seal, who can hide us from the wrath of the Lamb? Of course, you can't hide from the wrath of the Lamb. It's impossible. 
But different verses refer to this wrath, like Joel 2.11 says, For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? That's an Old Testament reference to it. The day of the Lord. All, and the day of the Lord can refer to um, all the way to Armageddon, just Armageddon, and it can refer to the whole tribulation period. Does that make sense? Right? Does that make sense? The day of the Lord can refer to the seven or, uh, in the same way, back to Matthew chapter 24. Is Matthew chapter 24 written to the Jewish person, the Gentile person, the church, all the above? Yes. And that's where you have to really study to know when Jesus is stepping in and out of the target audience, if you will. And in some respects, it covers all, but not if you don't understand the whole Bible, why does he refer to Daniel? Very important. We'll get to that in just a second. That everything Jesus says is strategically, perfectly placed. And the wise will understand. They'll study these things and understand the context of it. The church and the wrath of God. So, are we, as the church, were we prepared for this wrath to come? No. Scripture says... We're not. Romans 5.9, much more than now having been justified by his blood, we have been, or we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Whoo! Saved from the wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God had not appointed us to wrath, but obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Old Testament plays a role in this, I believe, and others believe as well, in giving us pictures of this. It's nice to have, you know, it's nice when you write something and then you put a picture. Like I give someone directions and I, then I'll grab a picture of the map off of like Bing Maps or something and just so you know exactly what I mean, boom, here's a picture of it. Here's kind of what it looks like. That's the road. There's the house. Remember when we had the, the thing across the street? I did a map on top of it. You could see exactly where it was going to be. Well, we have some pictures, I believe, in the Old Testament that show us the church being removed. Take an example. Before the flood, what happened to Enoch? Right on up into heaven. He didn't die. What happened to Noah and his family? They were taken up above the waters, up out of the flood. Everyone else? destroyed by it. But they were taken up above the waters. Matter of fact, when they got in the ark, they didn't even know when God was going to shut the door. That was God's doing. The door to heaven, we go in it. The ark, you go in the door. Then you have, uh, and then of course judgment falls, uh, then you have Lot. Now Lot is good news for all of us because he made a lot of bad mistakes and was still saved. And guess what? He still escaped the judgment. Peter calls him righteous Lot. Those of you that read the Old Testament, you're like, Lot, righteous? I think I will get in. <laughs> right? Because Peter calls him righteous. You know, Lot is just like people who love the Lord and make really, really miserable mistakes and look back and have a lot of regrets, and Jesus still says, you're still mine. And Lot, Peter refers to him as righteous Lot, 2 Peter 2, 7. He was taken out of Sodom before the fires of God fell on the city. Lot was taken out. It wasn't just Lot. It wasn't just Noah. 
wasn't just Enoch. Rahab. Before Jericho was obliterated, the red cord that represented what? The blood of Jesus, Rahab, and her family escaped the judgment. Why? Because I believe God gives pictures of the Old Testament that lend themselves to the new. Some people reject that. They're, oh, I don't think that's the case. So why would the Old Testament, how would they have the harmony if God isn't showing us something to come? The wrath of God. Now, the pre-wrath view, as I mentioned, um, the pre-wrath view is that in the book of Revelation, uh, it says in verses 16 and 17, And they said unto the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Um, so some view that, that this begins the great tribulation. I maintain that the whole tribulation is the great tribulation. But there's, there, uh, the pre-wrath view is that this, this begins the worst of the worst of the worst, and that's where it says the wrath of the Lamb. Now, though things do get progressively worse throughout the tribulation, uh, I, I don't know how anyone could look at the first six seals and not see it as the absolute wrath of God. Why would I say that? Well, in Revelation chapter 6, for example, it tells us that um, starting in verse uh, uh, 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come and see. And I look, and behold, a black horse, him who sat on a, had a pair of scales. And I heard a voice in the midst of the living creature saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now remember, this is an angel speaking. One of the four living creatures says, And do not harm the oil and wine. God is marking off, I'm harming a bunch of stuff, but don't harm the oil and wine. So we actually know that it's coming from God because the angel says, but don't harm the oil and wine yet. The other stuff is getting some serious wrath. How much so? Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, so I looked and behold, was a pale horse, and in the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades, which is, means hell, followed after him, and power was given over them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, the beasts of the field. Now, World War II, about 50 million people died. There's 7 million people on the earth. Do the math. Divide 7 million. That's just that one, that's just verse 8. That doesn't include all the other plagues, and all the other death in each of the other seals. So it's actually hard for us to come up with the exact number, but if we just take a fourth, can you remember a time in all of world history where one quarter of the world's population died in a very short period of time? Seven billion people. We, we, the world was panicked when 5,000 people died of Ebola. This is 50 million times, you're talking one-fourth of seven well over 1. You know, 1.5 billion people, but that's not even necessarily the high number because the, all the other plagues, we don't know the number. So you could have a lot. Imagine in a short period of time, less than the time of World War II, much less, almost a little more than half the time of World War II, you have somewhere between one and maybe upwards of three billion people die. If that's not wrath, I don't know what is. 
because the angels already said, don't harm the oil and wine, but the other stuff, pour out. Now, what I believe is that the people just recognize the wrath by the, by the sixth seal. It finally is in there, whoa, this really is the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, most of them don't repent anyway, even after they uh, are revealed it. But we're not prepared for wrath. And by the way, some will say, well, no, no, the first six seals, that's the wrath of Satan. The wrath of Satan is really revved up when there's a war in heaven and Satan is cast out of heaven. He has a battle with Michael and the archangels. And then Satan goes after the woman, which is a picture of Jerusalem, and her offspring, which are those that have gotten saved from the preaching of the evangelist, the offspring, not just the Gentiles, but even uh, Jewish people that will come to Christ as well. Number seven, so that's the wrath of God. I know I'm moving quick. Um, do you want me to finish this up? Or you want me to stop? All right, I'll finish it up. Number seven. It's better than what's on TV at home, I promise you. That'll go away. Number seven. Number seven. The time of Jacob's trouble. The tribulation period was not, it's not for the church. I mean, it wasn't, it's not God's plan for the church. Will people get saved? Praise the Lord, yes. Millions, millions will come to Christ in the tribulation. But he's not, he didn't create the seven-year period for the church. Though many will get saved in it. Let's look at some scriptures that, that make this clear. Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. Alas, for that day is great, so none is like it. The day is the whole seven-year period, not one particular day. The day is the time period, the tribulation. For that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now, many of uh, Israel will be saved. Many in Israel will flee Jerusalem and make it to what would be Edom or Basra, and they'll be a safe place, and they will come to believe in Messiah Yeshua. Amen? They will be saved and redeemed, but they'll then have to survive it, just like the children of Israel did in Goshen when these plagues were being poured out in Egypt. By the way, that was just Israel and Egypt. That wasn't a bunch of Gentile nations all cooped up in Goshen. It was just Israel there in Goshen, and it'll be just Israel down there in Basra, and there'll be a remnant of Israel. About a third of the children of Israel will be there, and they will be saved, and they'll be protected by the Lord during that time. They'll be saved out of the tribulation, or more like the Red Sea, through it. But the day will be great, none like it, but Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. He doesn't call it the time of the church's trouble. Of course, the church isn't mentioned in the Old Testament in those terms, I know, but he's specific. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not just Jeremiah. Moses in Deuteronomy 4.30, when thou art in tribulation, Moses saying, all right, here's how it's all going to go down. You know, Moses said in Deuteronomy 28, uh, you guys are going to really, you know, like all the new toys God gives you in the promised land, you'll abandon him, you'll follow other nations, he'll disperse you among the nations, but one day he'll bring you back after tribulation. But when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient unto his voice. goes on to talk about the mercy of God. In the latter days, there'll be tribulation that will be upon Israel for the chasing of the Lord. Now, the clincher, though, is where Jesus referred to in the book of Daniel. 
to me, the clincher of the whole thing is Daniel chapter 9. Everyone heard of the 70 weeks? You're about to. It's in your Bible. Daniel 9, 24. This is what is written. 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who's the angel talking to? Daniel. Who's Daniel's people? The Jewish. Where did Daniel pray three times a day before he was thrown in the lion's den? Jerusalem. Your people. For 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. That's not Babylon. That's Jerusalem. To finish what? To finish the transgression. Israel is being judged for not keeping the covenant that God made with them and Abraham. But he won't abandon the covenant, but there's going to be some chastening, some serious chastening because of it. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, individual salvation was purchased where? On the cross. But God does odd things with nations. He makes nations pay on earth for things. Individuals have a choice, and we still, we still pay a price. We sow what we reap, right? We still pay a price. But individually, our redemption uh, is a personal transaction with the Lord Jesus Christ. But nations, Israel, it wasn't just that they could do one thing. God said there's 70 weeks, and every minute, every minutia of that 70 weeks will be completed, and then I'll consider you clean as a nation. Say, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, you're not God. Neither am I. It's what he determined. Now, I love what the angel says. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Case closed. Seventy weeks, your holy city. Now he goes on in verses 25 to 27. He outlines what those 70 weeks are. What are they? Well, each week is a group of seven years. And there's seven weeks which represents seven groups of seven. So you have 49 years of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's from the, Babylon, from the end of the Babylonian captivity when Nehemiah was given, all right, I can go back, and they started to rebuild the city, 49 years to rebuild the city. Then you had 62 additional weeks, and Daniel actually, the angel tells Daniel, you have seven plus 62, that gives you 69. The 62 weeks take us from the end of the rebuilding of the city to when? Jesus entering on a foal of a donkey at the triumphal entry. That was the 69th week, 434 years later. So you have the 69 weeks, uh, I'm sorry, 434 plus the 49, and you have the 483 years. So you have the 49, 49 years plus the 434 years, and you have 483 when Jesus comes into Jerusalem right there on the east side, coming down to Mount of Olives. That's the 483rd year or the 69th week. And it says in verse 26, Messiah shall be cut off. He was cut off just a few days later at the cross. Then there's a seventh week. But the seventh week doesn't, hasn't happened yet. So there's this long gap of which roughly 95% of the gap, Israel wasn't even a nation. A.D. 70 till 1948. 95% of the time, Israel didn't even exist as a nation during that gap. Now Israel is a nation as of 1948, but we still haven't had the seven 
We still haven't had the 70th week. We couldn't even have the 70th week right now if we wanted to. Why? There's no temple. There's no temple. There's no sacrifices to stop in the middle of the seven year. There's no temple to even do the sacrifices. There's no covenant. There's no world leader to make the covenant with Israel. But all that's coming. The point is that the seven-year tribulation, God made clear it's for your people. Time of Jacob's trouble. Middle of the week is the covenant broken. Temple. Antichrist will come to Jerusalem. The whole thing centers around Israel. It doesn't center around the church. In in some respects, the church is almost an afterthought. Not salvation, but the church. Like I said, the church isn't mentioned as the church structure, Revelation 6 through 19. Jesus' emphasis, his whole emphasis on the Olivet Discourse, with the exception of the beginning of sorrows, the emphasis is always where? Jerusalem and Israel. You flee the mountains of Judea. He doesn't say anything about Tokyo. And if you're in Tokyo, make sure you go to Fuji. The whole emphasis is Jerusalem, the surrounding area, because that's where the abomination desolation, the 70 weeks has to fulfill there. All of this is about Jacob's trouble, all of it coming. Now it's also about judgment on the world too, and that's referenced also. But he also references the fig tree. It's watching the fig tree, watching the fig tree. Israel's the fig tree. He never mentions Israel having fruit. Why? Because fruit doesn't come until Israel turns to Yeshua, Messiah. Tender leaves, Israel's got that right now. Tender leaves is, hey, it's green, the country's beautiful, the tree is growing, but there's still no fruit. Fruit is a work of salvation. That's when there's a turning to Christ. That won't take place until Jesus takes the church out of the world, and then the Jewish nation realizes, ah, he really was the Messiah. And even they have to still believe in a false Messiah, the Antichrist, and then finally, many people's eyes will be opened. Now, we're all the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. That's true. We're we're grafted in. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. We're grafted in. We're the spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham. In heaven, we're all one family of God. But until heaven, there is a distinction between the nation state, although any Jewish person and Gentile person were both one in Christ, um, you and I, we might all be spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, but unlike David, unlike Daniel, unlike Paul, we're not Jewish and we're not physical Israel. Paul said, my countrymen. The angel said to Daniel, your people. These are specific things. God placed Israel in a literal city. Jerusalem is a real place with real dust on the ground. Real place. The two witnesses, where will they be? They'll be in Jerusalem. The 144,000, all Jewish evangelists from Jewish tribes, seen in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. Revelation 12, 17, the woman is Israel. The whole thing centers around, and then her offspring is those that have come to Christ through, um, through the work that God does through the nation of Israel during that time. Number eight, wrap, trying to roll through this. Number eight, the pre-tribulation view, and this is very related to number seven. The pre-tribulation view best supports the distinct differences between God's plan for uh, the church and for Israel. Um, you'll have people that believe in replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel, No. 
This is what uh, Jeremiah has to say about that. Thus says the Lord uh, who gives the sun for light by day and the ordinance of the moon and stars by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. God's like, you still see the sun and the moon? Israel's still a nation before me. Because there's people right now. I, I read one commentator. I, I, didn't, I did almost all of my study, just the Lord just kind of bringing me back. But I read this one, and I, I know the Lord had me see this one statement. There's a powerful statement one guy made. He said, the argument that Israel is no longer God's chosen people, he said, is the exact argument the Antichrist will use. Be careful. Don't play with that fire. That's, that was heavy. He said, people that walk around saying... God's replaced Israel as a nation. They're not really his, they're not his nation people anymore. The church, we are now Israel. And the Antichrist will make a good case that they're not God's people either. And then it'll become another holocaust in the tribulation. I wouldn't even want to go down and think along those lines. The Bible refutes that. Um, but the pre-tribulation view best supports that there's a distinctive difference between we're living in the church age, the age of grace. This is a dispensation. There's different dispensations. For example, you would agree with me that it was definitely a different time when people lived to be 900 before the flood. True? That was a different dispensation than now. There was no Israel before the flood. There was no church per se before the flood, but people were getting saved and there was a, still a plan of God to bring people to himself. But Enoch walked with God. Things were different. They all knew Adam personally. Not everybody, but I mean, you could meet Adam. He lived to be a ripe old age, right? So if you're 400 years old, Adam was still around. Hey, Adam, what was it like to walk with God in the garden? Do you know anyone that you could ask that question today? Different dispensation and time. The Bible has these different times, and we're in the church age. And so... Uh, this is best supported by a pre-tribulation view that there was a time in Israel in the Old Testament. Then there was the 69 weeks, which were clearly, we're in a gap period. What's the gap? The church age. The 70th week still has to take place. And the pre-tribulation view best supports these distinctive differences. Number nine, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Maybe I should stop here. I, I, got, I can either, I've got probably 10 minutes, we could be done at 8.30, which the people downstairs are probably going crazy. Um, that thing's over? Okay. Okay, we'll stop there. Um, the last two, though, you're really going to want to hear, though. So, because the last two are probably, um, the last two I'm going to really dig into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is a very misunderstood chapter by people that, Really look at that chapter, and I think, I'll just kind of give you a preview, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you go home and read it, a lot of people will read that, and they think that what it's saying is that the church can't be raptured until the church is there identifying the Antichrist. I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. Quite the opposite. I look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as a great referendum on the rapture before the tribulation. And, and I'll show you why, because Paul is reverting back. He's actually correcting something that has come in since the last time they received his epistle. Someone else got in there and told them they were in the tribulation. I'm kind of giving you a heads up view. 
or seemed to indicate they could be in the tribulation already. And there was good reason they could think that, because there was bad guys like Nero then, right? Wild and crazy Roman empires, emperors that were nutso, that were as evil as anyone had ever seen, so they, they had good reason to think they had entered, and Paul's like, you have not. Let me explain how this... So we'll look at that. Paul goes through the sequence and takes them back to 1 Thessalonians, if you will, Say, I, I went over this with you. This is how it rolls. We'll take a look at that next time. 2 Thessalonians 2, and then we'll look lastly, uh, another clinching one that I think is Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 through 41, and we'll look at that. So, um, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, we did our best. There's a lot to cover. And I could have gone a lot longer than that. This is a deep study. So let's close in prayer. We'll pick it up if I have to. Even our praise and prayer service, if I have to cover the last two, we can put them on there. I hope you hit end on that already, uh, because I know it's not going to fit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. Lord, we pray that you would just settle these things. Uh, Lord, no matter what, uh, you want us to be ready for your return, whenever that may be. And Lord, we pray that, uh, that we would study and be assured of the things that you promised to the church and to... Uh, uh, to the nation of Israel, to your people. Lord, we pray that we would understand the cornerstone verses, and that we would understand uh, those things that take precedence and understanding uh, more than anything else, Lord, that you want the knowledge of your return to be a purifying work that we would draw nearer to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Was that helpful?